Hello, circus freaks and killer mummies and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today is a writer and editor and folk musician, which is a sentence I've never been able to say in the introduction before. Um, she's currently the editor at Kids Screen, and she has bylines at Polygon, Slash Film, Screen Rant, and more. Folks, say hello to our good friend, Sarah B. Milner. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. And for, uh, I got to say, just a little life hack for um, for potential guests. When someone reaches out and is like, I want to do a year that was a really, really long time ago, um, that is like catnip for us because it is so hard to find people who are enthusiastic <laughs> about those very early years of cinema. So Sarah, tell us about the year that you pitched to me and uh, and why you wanted to talk about this particular era. All right, so I did 1932. Very good. And to be totally honest, I picked it because 1931 had already been taken. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. But, but to be fair, when I started looking at 1932, I do think it actually is a better year. Excellent. Uh, so my entry into the world of doing film stuff uh was basically university. I'm like a super late bloomer. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did a, a thesis on Frankenstein, like on uh -huh. just Frankenstein and pop culture. And uh -huh. I really, really fell in love with 30s Hollywood just from learning all about, um, well, obviously like the 1931 Frankenstein and the mm -hmm. universal horror and James Whale. Really fell in love with James Whale, someone sure. I had literally never heard of. And it blew my mind that this person existed and kind of faded from public memory. Mm -hmm. So when I saw uh, you posting about your podcast on Twitter, a podcast that I listen to anyways, <laughs> I thought like, this is a really great like opportunity for me to come in and to talk about the 30s, specifically pre-code 30s when Hollywood was like a little bit more racy. Mm -hmm. Well, you're as as you mentioned, you know your 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 entry point was sort of the classic horror. Uh, your top five is heavy on classic horror. <laughs> yeah, really what is. what is? I mean, were you always a horror kid? Where did this your love for this particular era of the genre come from? Why have you retained this this such a keen interest in this? Well, I was always a weird kid. Like right. I was one of those kids Welcome. that watched the same <laughs> I watched the same movies over and over again. And sure. the movies I was really drawn to were like Men in Black, right? Mm -hmm. Or like the Blues Brothers. Sure. Um, but I mean that's the music thing, right? Uh so I do like horror, um, but I don't like like I don't really like slasher horror. I don't mm -hmm. really like some of the like really like violent or like even just like really, really scary stuff. Like it's sure. too much for me. Sure. But the thing I put like 30s horror is it's scary and it's thematic and it's dramatic and it's so funny. 30s horror is so funny. But it's like the kind of movie that like I can watch it and be scared and like not have nightmares. Uh -huh. <laughs> so yeah. when I realized that I was like, I really found my calling. It's like, I love horror, but this is horror that like I can eat all of it and I'm never going to get sick. Gotcha. That totally scans. Tell me again what the subject of your thesis was. <laughs> so... Um, I got into it kind of sideways. I uh, knew I wanted to do a thesis on adaptations between text to film and mm -hmm. the ways at which just that change of medium really affects the story. Um, 
And Frankenstein was just a good text to use as an example because it's such a, a great illustration of that. It's there's been like you know a hundred years of Frankenstein film adaptations, and the ideas of of what we think Frankenstein is today is like very far removed from Mary Shelley's novel, and sure. like most people like don't even realize that. Um, so that I think was it, it was less about I wanted to do a thesis about. Frankenstein and more I wanted to do a thesis about adaptation and pop culture and Frankenstein was just the perfect way to do it uh, mm. and that really opened up like a lot of avenues for me in terms of my own like academic interests censorship was a huge part of that thesis project it probably prolonged my thesis writing by six months <laughs> but I just got so obsessed with like the Hayes Code and the Legion of Decency mm-hmm. you know and the PCA and Joseph Breen and you know like Especially because Frankenstein 1931 is pre-code, Bride of Frankenstein 1935 was not, and you uh-huh. so you see specifically just between those two texts a lot of changes in the in the way that James Willard approached filmmaking. Anyways, I'm going to stop because otherwise I'll just ramble about Frankenstein this entire okay, but, podcast. But you can and send it's not me even PDF 1932 of this. You can you can send me the PDF of this this uh, this. Uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> dissertation though right because that's deep nerd shit i need it <laughs> actually so we the worst part about it all is we ended up having to cut like basically my entire section on censorship because it just didn't make sense like it didn't really have anything to do with my my core i just really got obsessed with it so sure. i ended up just having it as an appendix so i could just send you a like 20 page appendix that was just there you go like academic wanking basically <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to be cc'd on that all right um before we get into more uh academic wankiness um mike is going to walk us through some of the stuff that was going on in the world around the cinema the world around the the, the sometimes horrific uh real world of 1932 here's headlines <laughs> 1932 was was uh, was relatively clean for a 30s year, um, relatively. On January okay. 4th, the British uh, arrested. I'm gonna. I'm sorry about this name. I'm sure oh, he's boy. dead, but I'm gonna apologize anyway. Uh, Vala Babai Patel and Mahatma Gandhi for being uppity, essentially. So mm-hmm. they obviously never had to deal with that guy again. Yep, yep. That that nip that in the bud. Yep. On January 31st, Japanese warships arrived in Nanjing, and if you know anything about history, you know that began one of the worst combinations of time and place in the 20th century, which is not a low bar. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my duty and privilege to declare open the proceedings of the First World Conference on Disarmament. On February 2nd, the World Disarmament Conference began in Geneva, so wrapped that right up. Germany was <laughs> had a lot to say about that. Okay. <laughs> was that the Geneva Convention? Like when people say no. the Geneva... No, okay. Sorry, I got no. briefly excited that I'd heard about something you were talking about in headlines. Carry on. They keep trying to go back to Geneva. Maybe they should find some place else to go where people will feel peaceful. I don't know. There you go. I, I can't solve world world peace. Also in February, I love how we're doing all these horror movies uh, in this episode because like, there's mm-hmm. several sort of genre things that mm-hmm. really became a thing you know, okay. right around this time. In February was the debut of Clara Lou and M, the first daytime network soap. Oh, still going strong. Oh. I, I genuinely think they're probably still doing the same storylines. They've just changed the title. <laughs> <laughs> 
Probably so, yeah. I mean, who among us doesn't remember, you know, staying home on a sick day uh, from school and watching Clara, Lou, and M with mom? <laughs> it's a cherished childhood memory. Here is the patch of woods barely four miles from his home where baby Lindbergh was found, his little body lying face downward in the underbrush, killed by those who kidnapped him. For 72 days, a worldwide search failed to yield any clues as to what had happened to the child. In March, some weirdos kidnapped Charles Lindbergh's baby and made headlines. There has to be a movie about that, right? You know, I, I'm i sure there's like a TV movie in like the 70s that we've all forgotten about, but it's you're, I, it, that seems ripe for revisitation. Maybe this is the, the, the post-Oppenheimer project that somebody needs to uh, tap Chris Nolan about. If they make it now, most of it's going to be about how he like came out as a Nazi shortly there. Yeah, everybody was like, yeah, he oh, sure oh, did. Oh, oh, he maybe sure should have lost did. that kid. Maybe <laughs> when Ray grew up as a little fucking Nazi that way. Also in March, uh, the founder of Kodak, George Eastman, wrote a note that said, "Quote to my friends, my work is done. Why wait?" Unquote. And then he shot himself in the heart. Jesus. Uh, he had apparently been in intense pain from a spinal injury and decided he just about had enough. And like, I'm not trying to judge anybody for deciding they've like done their time mm-hmm. but like please like wouldn't you like to have something more inspirational in mind than like my work is done you know like i, I, <laughs> I, know I got what? my gold watch guys that's enough for me it's a little bit gangsta i'm not gonna lie to you like <laughs> i'm kind of i'm kind of with him wait did he shoot himself in the heart that's that is the story as it's reported. That's intense. Yeah, it is. Right? What have you is. missed? <laughs> <laughs> like get a shotgun or something at least like not yeah. something small you know and don't be drunk because then you'll definitely (laughs) miss yeah in april german chancellor heinrich brunning banned the nazi sa and ss calling them threats to public order who were chiefly responsible for the political violence afflicting germany at the time huh thank god we didn't have to deal with those assholes again hey quick cue can we do that here can 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 we bring (laughs) can can we do that in America now? That'd be awesome. Uh, in July, the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit its lowest point in the Great Depression. You know what the number was? Mm-hmm. 41. Jesus Christ. You, you know what the number was that closed yesterday? 35,314. I mean, okay. like, we can't even conceive of sort of what the economy 41. was like in 32. Yeah. Unemployment was around 33%, uh, yeah. which is a number that, like, we cannot imagine in our lifetime. So far. So, so far, far they the may fuck young. around and bring yeah. these uh, bring these numbers back. But the yeah. first Mars bar was made in August in the UK. That's good. Great. Good. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Also in August was the first Venice Film Festival. Huzzah. Right, then. Huzzah. Yeah. yeah. Golden Bears, baby, right? That's right. Or is that Berlin? No. Okay. Uh, in September, the IND 8th Avenue line started operation. At the time, it was the longest subway line in the world at 31 miles and is still functioning more days than not. <laughs> we always have to do the decoder ring here, Mike. So, because they stopped using these, you know, when that when it all became one thing. I and D Eighth Avenue. That's that's the that's ABC. the one two three up the up the. Oh no, you're right. The a, you know you're right. You're right. Okay, yeah. That's 8th the Avenue. ABC. The blue line. ABC. The 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 red line was the IRT. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah, not yeah, not not the most reliable of New York subways, the IND Eighth Avenue ABC, but we'll we'll congratulate it on its uh, 1932 launch. But definitely has the best song about any New York City or anywhere else's oh. subway line, right? Oh, 100%. Yes. Take the A train. Of I course. mean, is there a better subway song? All right, no. Good. 
Nope. Uh, also in September, the Soviet famine of 32 and 33 started. Eventually, Soviet leadership would let millions of people starve to death because they were cruel authoritarian ideologues and terrible running a country. Yep. So, can't have a perpetual workers' here. revolution if everybody's hungry. Yep. I am glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country, which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. It is a vote that had more than mere party significance. It transcended party lines and became a national expression of liberal thought. In November, Franklin Roosevelt beat the pants off of Herbert Hoover to become president for the first time. And say what you want about the guy, at least he didn't kill millions of people in a famine because they might not vote for him next time. No, but Herbert Hoover probably did kill millions of people in a famine indirectly. <laughs> that guy was a piece of shit. Like, here's my historical commentary for the show. Fuck Herbert Hoover. Mike? <laughs> Fair enough. 30, 32, proven that both capitalists and communists can starve you for no good reason. There also in November it. was the debut of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, which was the first sci-fi show on the radio. So hey. we've got... Early horror, the first serial soap, and the first serial sci-fi all coming out of the gate in 32. Good stuff. I'm going to pass a judgment based on something I haven't seen or heard, which I try not to do, but I, I'm not quite sure how you make a sci-fi show work on the radio. That just seems really, really difficult to pull off. You use really, really good audio effects. Yes, yes. You have a lot, a lot of pew, pew, pew on that show, I would imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've never heard of anyone who died in 32, uh, mm-hmm. and you might not have heard of anyone who was bored. It's a weird border year for that. Okay. It's sort of like, uh, but we'll give it a shot. Dabney Coleman? Anybody? Dabney, Dabney Coleman? fucking Coleman, yes. Yeah. 80s okay. ubiquitous character actor <laughs> and king. Dabney Coleman, hell yes. Good. We're coming out of the box with somebody we, we know of. Diane Fossey? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Diane Fossey? Uh, well, Sigourney Weaver played her in a movie. That's why I know who Diane Fossey is. All right, good start. Coxone Dodd? Anybody know about Cox and Dodd? He's a Jamaican record producer. He's basically responsible for giving the world Bob Marley, ska, reggae. He was a very, very important man. Maybe right. more important than Franklin Roosevelt. Probably not. All right. But maybe. Anyway, job less Cox and Dodd. All right. Uh, Richard Lester, Piper mm-hmm. Laurie, yep. friend of the show, Francois Truffaut. Yep. He's always mentioned lovingly on the show. Ellen Burstyn. Okay, that's that's a good little dream blood rotation right there. Uh, Richard Lester, Piper yeah. Laurie, Francois Truffaut, Ellen Burstyn. I'll, I'll, I'll share one with them. Good stuff. Robert Anton Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, Gay Talese, Mr. John Williams, who I've said <laughs> one snide thing about, and now I feel I have to, to respect lovingly forever. I noticed the uh, Mr. on there, and he's yeah. owed that, that respect from you, Mike. Yeah. Will, Mike We're Mike giving Will. him his yes, Mr. Yes. That was my yes, choice, not yours. Well done. Uh, Milos Forman, uh, Elizabeth uh. Taylor. Yeah, he's a friend of the show for sure. Anthony yeah. Perkins, uh, Andre Tarkovsky, Omar Sharif, and Peter O'Toole were both born in 32. Nice. To meet uh, uh, yeah. quite productively some years later. Yes, Elaine indeed. May. Oh, hell Shout yes. out Elaine May, Junior yeah. Parker, Sonny Liston, Melvin Van Peebles, Dick yeah. Gregory, yes. Sylvia Plath, Little Richard, okay. Donald Bird. All right. And check this out, okay? Farron Young, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Mel Tillis, Patsy Cline, and Loretta fucking Lynn. Good wow. year for Spangles wow. and Dangles, baby. <laughs> nice work. I did pick the best year. <laughs> I'm, 
you really killed it. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the movies yet. In sports, the Chicago Bears beat the Portsmouth Spartans to win the first National Football League championship game. The Washington football team was started in Boston, and they were originally named the Braves, so that Jesus. fucking team has needed a name change for 90 fucking years already, those people. Good Lord. Uh, Eddie Tolan broke the men's 100-meter world record time with a 10.3-second performance. You know what the current record is? This is almost 100 years later. Mm-hmm. The current record is 9.58 seconds held by Usain Bolt. I expected Jeez. it to be a lot. Uh, I expected there to be much more of a difference. Yeah, no shit. Okay. Yeah, that guy could almost catch Usain Bolt. Yeah. Uh, I have Karlstad Gotha beat Vasteris SK3 to 2 to win the Bandy Championship. Hell of a game. What Hoo-wee. fucking sport are you even talking about? <laughs> and there goes a home run that scores Gehrig and starts the Cubs on the toboggan. To lose by 13 to 6 and give the Yankees their third four-game World Series sweep. The Cubs fought as best they could, but the American League champion steamroller was a little too much for them. The New York Yankees, you've heard of them, swept the Chicago uh, Cubs four games to zero to win the World Series. Game nice. three included the famous Babe Ruth called shot home run. What a fucking show off that guy was. God bless him. God bless him. He said, eat it, Boston. <laughs> there were Olympics in 32, but we wouldn't recognize any of the sports. I'm just kidding. The U.S. got silver in hockey, and some people still remember that arcane game. Uh, uh, overall, the U.S. won the most medals and the most gold. Did you? Both- hang on. I would. I don't. Mike, did you know we had a Canadian coming on when you decided to like? Did I besmirch hockey? I'm just curious. Did I act like everybody should know who won a bandy game in 32, but nobody's heard of hockey, a professional sport living well in 2023? I sure just did that. Uh, overall, the U.S. won the most medals and the most golds at both the Summer and Winter Olympics in 32, but they were held in Los Angeles and Lake Placid, respectively, so suspect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, home field, Trump. you know. The Triple yeah. Crown was almost won by a horse named Burgoo King, which has to be an inside <laughs> joke that I do not understand, and nobody's gotten in many years and finally india played their first official test match against england in cricket england would win that first game by 159 runs but they've been getting their asses this is a story about colonialism i know you don't like cricket but this is about colonialism okay uh they've been getting their asses handed to them by indian cricket players for decades now so that was just a cool start all right to a hot fucking that's headlines all right thank you mike sarah b milner you ready to do a top five i am All right, so we discussed it before the show, as we do, and we have a, what I would classify as a random but not random ordering to the top five list. Uh, this is not ranked, but uh, it's it's not in, a, in an obvious order, but the order will reveal itself. We'll put it that way. Um, so where should we begin? What is your first film of your top five for 1932? Okay, my first one is Freaks. And now, folks, if you'll just step this way, you are about to witness the most amazing, the most astounding living monstrosity of all time. Todd Browning film, and it's probably the one that I think listeners are most familiar with. One of us. One, yeah. of us. One of us. <laughs> One of us. And why, why, oh, why do you love freaks so very, very much? I mean, like, what's not to love? It's <laughs> very scary. It's mm-hmm. like weirdly, like, very radical for the time. Like, it's very um, political. Uh, 
I, that just didn't come up earlier, but like one of my areas of, of interest slash specialty is in disability studies, and it's a great disability studies text. Uh, I'm not going to say Ooh, that it's okay. Hang on. Ooh, yeah. Yes. No. 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 I was just saying. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't glide past that because that it, if that being the case, I'm really interested in hearing the specifics of that. Like, what what is the sort of what are the pluses and minuses of disability representation in freaks? I mean. Here's the thing. It's called it freaks. is representation. Well, yeah, it's called freaks, right? <laughs> so it's and it's a horror film and it was right. very much, I think, marketed poorly, which mm. explains kind of what happened after. But mm. it, it it's comes from like maybe not a very kind place, right? Mm-hmm. But that's really not how the film is. And like when you watch the film, it doesn't feel like a 30s film in a lot of ways. It's extremely compassionate to these people that have various disabilities. It really humanizes them and dehumanizes the more like um, Hollywood beautiful characters. Um, So it's, it's really encouraging kind of like a counter reading of itself as, you know, yeah, on the surface level, it's a story about, you know, these horrific freaks and they're monsters and they do this monstrous thing, but the film is actively telling you the entire time that they're the good guys. And, you know, it's the it's a story of vengeance and you really relate to it. And I don't think like today's audience, I don't think you can watch that movie and at any time feel like, you know, the uh, the the people who are disabled and who are uh, violent at the end you don't see them as the bad people. You see no. them as standing up for themselves. Yes. And I think part of the reason the <laughs> those motherfuckers had it coming, they had it coming. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't help it. Like, especially if I've been drinking, which I often have when I'm watching that movie, like by the time we get to the scene where like, like the one little person flicks up his like switchblade knife, I cheer. I stand up. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> get it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. you know, it's so. a really, it's a, it's a film, I think, that was ahead of its time. People say that a lot, but in this case, I think it really was because it was a film that just didn't function in 1932. Like right. people, like a lot of the reviewers couldn't get past the fact that there were actual disabled people on screen when they made the film. A lot of those actors were not allowed to be in the same area as the normies because oh, they geez. were seen as being like uncomfortable to be around, which is disgusting. Right. Um, but at the same time, like you know you you see people that are missing limbs or they have different physical like deformities or birth defects and or maybe they have something that's a result of an injury and like even today in 2023 we don't get to see a lot of people like that on screen you know that's still like that's one frontier i think in hollywood we haven't quite like dealt with properly is like we still need better disability representation in hollywood um so this is a text that for anybody who cares about that like it's it's a film you can really rally around you're like it was like 1932 they were doing this stuff in 1932 like why aren't we doing not this exactly but like why aren't we doing stuff like this now like why aren't we making stories where we're humanizing and normalizing really people missing limbs or you know what i mean like having having various challenges totally and for listeners who may not be familiar uh, with the backstory on this, um, whom was the director and and what was he coming off of when? Because yeah. we we talk okay. a lot about the blank, the idea of the blank check movie, and of course, our you know, there's a wonderful podcast about that idea. This to me is a really early example of a blank check movie. Well, it was Todd Browning, and he was 
coming out of Universal and onto MGM, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were like, hey, you guys want to get into horror? Do this this movie. And it was based on, I think, a short story. And he had, or, we should mention, he had just done Dracula the year sorry, before. Yes, yes. Sorry. Like, yes. So, like, Dracula, 1931, big hit. I don't know why he left Universal. That's something that I, I forgot to look into. But, like, that's why it was so appealing to MGM is because they're like, well, you know, they fuck they had dracula they had frankenstein dollar signs drowning yeah yeah like yeah this is gonna do great for us and so uh, i think and also like you know you had universal you had uh carl emley jr really like pushing the horror like i'm just guessing because i haven't done a lot of research into mgm i'm more interested in universal but like you know i assume that there was just this expectation that todd browning knew what he was doing right like okay yeah like just do it and then when they did the test screenings so the movie was 90 minutes long they do the test screenings people flee the theater like there was talk about that like that was a very like 30s marketing thing like newspapers being like oh a woman fainted during frankenstein it's so horrifying see if you can sit through the whole thing but a lot of that was was not true right like uh but in this case like it actually like actually people were so upset and some some of it was people thinking that by putting people that were disabled in a film, it was exploitative. I disagree with that. But that was kind of some of the sentiment was putting these people on display is just like having a freak show. Yeah. Again, I disagree with that. But that was how some people felt. So some people were just disgusted and offended. Some people were actually like they they just couldn't handle how terrifying the scene was. Specifically, I think it's the scene where they start attacking uh, the uh Oh my God, what's her name? Is it Cleopatra? No, the uh, the acrobat. Anyways, mm-hmm. they start attacking her. So, you know, we know now that there was like 30 minutes of film that was just cut. So it was a yep. 90 minute film, scared the pants off people. MGM freaked out. They're like, oh my God. So they cut they cut it down to 60 minutes. Yeah. Every time I watch Freaks, I'm, it ends and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it's over. And I know it's going to be over. It's just... It's like you feel the movie ramping up for that like really huge, really scary climax. And it's just been like ripped away from the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nuts. And and of course, you know, because it was the 1930s and nobody knew about, you know, ancillary markets and, you know, that footage is long gone. There's no way to sort of see what was what was cut out of it. Uh, You can't just go to the deleted scenes section on the on the DVD, unfortunately. Um, But I think it also speaks really to the power of the movie that even. Even in this sort of, you know, boulderized form, this 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 portion of the movie that was allowed out into the world, uh, it's still so powerful and so well made and so moving and just it's just a great, great little movie. Yeah, it is really, really good. And this didn't come up, but but it did end basically Todd Browning's career, right. which is wild because Dracula yeah. was so huge. Mm-hmm. And then this film was just such a big hit for MGM, like not just financially, but also like their reputation yeah. th- that he was able to do a couple more films. He did a couple of vampire films trying to get back to Dracula, you know, um, fame. But he also couldn't do anything with Dracula because Universal owned the rights to that film and he wasn't with Universal anymore. So, you know, even though he had a couple pictures after that, like it basically ended his career, Freaks, which is sad because now people are like, oh, it's like his magnum opus. Like it's such a great film. It's totally, it totally holds up. Like, I'll be honest, I love all the films that are on my list today, but I 
fully understand that not everybody listening is going to like these movies because the 30s horror is kind of an acquired taste. It's a little bit slower, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little bit more subtle, it's a little bit funnier, and it's definitely jankier than anything we're watching now. But Freaks really does hold up. The cinematography yeah. is breathtaking. A lot yeah. of German expressionism, you know, a lot of use of shadows and eye lines and just like really forcing the audience to see things that will make you uncomfortable in a yeah. way that I think really elevates horror. Yeah. I saw it in college and everybody was like smoking extra reefer and drinking. And it was like <laughs> one of these, like nobody was really necessarily expecting anybody to pay attention to the movie. Cause it wasn't really that kind of vibe, but it, you know, somebody put the movie on and eventually everybody's just sitting there just like watching the movie, you know, and it was one of those things where they put it on because it's a freak show but then it turns out it's a really good movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that sort of, I think, took people by surprise, you know. Yeah, yeah holds Very up. Very much so. Very much so. All right, Sarah. So for the next movie on your list, let's, uh, well, what was happening at uh, at Universal in 1932? And, uh, and what film from there is next on your top five list i know that we're not actually recording the video but i have to show i have my little yeah support dolly with me it's my boris karloff as the mummy the mummy is it dead or alive human or inhuman you'll know you'll see you'll feel the awful creeping crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips There's nothing on earth like The Mummy. Uh, Oh, yeah. So the next one's The Mummy. Uh, So that was um, directed by, I'm going to say his name wrong, Carl Freund. Freund? Anyways, but I wanted to highlight that because he is the cinematographer that's behind a lot of the really big German expressionist movies that we all know, like Metropolis. And, um, you know, he he also did... um, Ooh, Murders in the Room Morgue, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But anyways, so... He's involved in The Mummy, and you can totally tell because it's such an atmospheric, slow-burn horror film. It was lower budget. Universal Wait, never I'm made sorry. It. Hang on. Slow-burn horror? Uh, I believe that was invented by A24. What are you talking about, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny when people are like, oh, my God, like, Get Out is funny. I've never seen like a funny horror movie before. And I'm like... <laughs> Like the first horror movies were funny. Like that's yes. that's how they thought to do it, and then only yes. later did we take that out. Right, right? that's not a, that's not a new concept. Uh, but yeah, okay. I also have a hot take because mm. I'm all over the place. I think that if the Dark Universe like literally just remade the Mummy, right, it would have worked better. Totally. Because I think that the story holds up, and I think mm-hmm. it was it's actually like retrospectively now would be a fresh take on it. So yep. uh, for those who haven't seen the movie. Uh, Boris Karloff is Imhotep. He's like this. He's a, a mummy, but he was like, Im- he wasn't properly embalmed. He was like, he was he transgressed. He angered people, so they're like, just threw him basically in a sarcophagus, wrapped him up, and threw in also for some reason this like scroll. Oh no, he got the scroll. Sorry, because a scroll that's like an immortality scroll, right? So you know, hundred years later, or sorry, not hundred years later, you know, hundreds of years later, they find this mummy. Somebody reads it, and then he comes back to life. Right. Yes. They read this magic scroll. When life. will people but- stop reading ancient texts aloud? <laughs> like it never works out well. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, this this the, that happened in the movie in like 1921 in the movie. So they probably just didn't know yet. 
right now. <laughs> but then gotcha. it was still okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so in, in the film, most of the film, Boris Karloff's mummy character is not a mummy. He's just a person. So mm-hmm. he, like, he gets into the into society and he, like, disguises himself. And that's kind of how he's nefarious. And I think that's a really interesting take on the mummy story that's that we've kind of gotten away from. You know, I love the 90s mummy movies too. But, you know, if Tom Cruise's mummy had been about a mummy who was, like, you know, I don't know, pretending to be like a tech bro or something. There like, you I go. I think that could have been a really interesting <laughs> angle, right? And then you there still you keep go. the love story. You know, he wants to bring back his his love interest and he finds that she's been reincarnated in the century. And so he has plans to like basically murder her and then turn her into like an immortal mummy monster like him. I don't know. It's just a great horror plot. And uh, I think the story holds up, even though it's a little bit slow and i know at the time people thought it was like oh there's like it's not as good as dracula and frankenstein mm-hmm. i still think it holds up boris karloff is one of his better roles he's like he's very very charming and scary at the same time yeah. he really acts with his eyes in a way that like a lot of those actors who were working actors during the silent period really understood how to use their eyes and the camera to like you know just just express a lot and that really helped him in particular because he was always had makeup on his face right like an, a lot of uh these horror films uh oh and makeup is by jack pierce who is you know the kind of like a legend in uh, nice. the the horror community right for his makeup outstanding all right well it's the, so cool yes. watching that movie and you're like wait is he wearing a suit <laughs> what is going on? You know what yes. I mean? Because yes. we're just like, as you pointed out, we're just sort of so not used to that. Yeah. And then once you're sort of realized, like, no, yeah, like, no, he's like, go, he's just out and about. Yep. <clears throat> he's like going to go get coffee pretty soon. Yep. It's sort of like it, it captures it captured me sort of differently, even beyond just sort of like, oh, this is a good movie. I was just sort of like, what the fuck? what is happening yeah. here? And no, it, paid it off. nicely, nicely upends uh, your expectations. Now, of course, when we're talking about universal horror, the two sort of acting pillars of that world are Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And so, uh, Sarah, for the number three film on your list, what was Bela Lugosi up to in 1932? <laughs> So interestingly, uh, we have another Frankenstein connection. So nice. murders in the Rue Morgue. Dr. Miracle in the Rue Morgue is guilty of four murders so far this week. And by now, perhaps a fifth. Directed by Robert Flory, and it starred Bela Lugosi. And if you know your Frankenstein history, originally yeah. Robert Flory was set to direct, and Bela Lugosi was going to be the monster. And then that kind of didn't work out, and they got taken off the project. And James Well got brought onto the project, and he never really wanted Bela Lugosi. He didn't like how fleshy his face was. At least that's that's what some <laughs> that's what some of the Hollywood history says. I, Other man, people if I had like. A- if I had a dollar for every girl who told me my face was too fleshy, I feel him. I feel his pain. It was meant in a nice way, you know, uh-huh. like like you didn't look gaunt enough. Yes. Uh, so other people said that Bela Lugosi didn't want the role because he he thought that like he was too charming. Like it, it's one of those like Hollywood history tidbits that like we'll sure. never agree on. But either way, they were taken off the project, so they're kind of like you know, uh, consolation prize was Universal's like, we'll do this this Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, right? We've done, we did two major novel adaptations. We did Frankenstein, we did Dracula, let's do Murders in the Room Morgue. Now, it did not land super well, mm. um, but I would say I think people retrospectively viewing it are much kinder to it. I think that uh, at the time, it just, it 
it didn't quite mesh up with the direction that the universal horror was going. It's a little bit sillier and campier. Um, and also the kinds of things that like, like that we really like things like that German expressionist lighting, um, you know, those elements. Um, oh, Carl Freund again, did the cinematography on this one. So you really nice. see that and in, in the, the shadows. And yeah. whatnot. But anyways, but that kind of stuff audiences didn't care about at the time, right? Like they might've known that they, they liked it, but they, they didn't, they didn't have the kind of like film sense that we do now where we're like, oh my God, like the things that they were doing with the cinematography are really amazing. Um, a lot of moving shots, which is like a little yes. bit unusual for the 30s. That's a Carl Freud yes. thing. Uh, he really pioneered the like unchained camera movement like process. This so there's was just something, a lot of like. Yeah, this really jumped out at me when I was watching both this and and the next film on the list was that like, you know, these a lot of these early talkies are just so chained down. The camera like was literally in a box that couldn't move. So it was like a really mm-hmm. stationary camera. And I love um I, I love these films where you see these really stylish, technically savvy early talkie directors like, no, goddamn it, we're going to figure out how to move this camera. And Robert Flory is doing that. You see that even in one of his first talkies, which incong- incongruently enough is the Marx Brothers, the Coconuts, um, <laughs> has some really inventive sort of pre-Busby Berkeley camera placement and shit like that. Um, you see it in a lot of Ruben Mamoulian's early talkies. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll see, we'll see it in the next film as well. I was really struck by how inventive the camera movement was in this picture. And it adds a lot to it too. I think totally. like, like not just that it's horror and it's frightening, but like it really immerses you and you can get really caught up in it. Um, the story is definitely a little bit silly, right? Mm-hmm. Like Bela Lugosi's character is just called Dr. Miracle. Right. And he's like, he's like lecturing in France about evolution. Mm-hmm. And it's it's set in the like 19th century as people are like, we're not related to chimps. How dare you? <laughs> uh, but then like his his evil plot is like, he wants to take women and turn them into ape women for his chimpanzee sure. pet instead of just as one does. getting- Instead of just getting a female chimpanzee, although he doesn't call it that, I noticed somebody calls it a baboon in the movie. Mm-hmm, so maybe in the mm-hmm. '30s, people were not super clear on their like primate species. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's such an interesting movie. It's so funny. Like, yep. there's so many moments in that movie where I laugh out loud. Like, yep. there's one scene where they've like they've killed a, a, a lady of the night, as my mom used to say. That's one of the victims, and mm-hmm. her her blood is not pure which in this context is a hint that she's a prostitute right because they could never just be like she's a whore like they couldn't do that in the 30s so even in the pre-code 30s yeah even yeah like i would love to chat at some point about how like this idea that the pre-code didn't have censorship is like pretty false it it definitely is looser but like there was censorship and the censorship in some ways was worse anyways so there's this this prostitute and this guy's showing it to the morgue and they're like asking all the questions and uh, like, like about the body and they're like profession. And the guy looks at the body and goes, yes. And it's like just such a funny <laughs> way to like, to nod the fact that she's yeah. a prostitute and you can't say she's a prostitute. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's great. And I think when I've, we're, we're talking about the next film um, that we'll be talking about in a minute. Like I have presented that before and what I always tell the people when we're about to watch it is like, don't be afraid to laugh. 
because I find especially people who are like maybe just getting to know this era, they like feel like they're not supposed to like they're like, mm-hmm. oh, like, but like, that's not no, like it's supposed to it's not dumb. It's it's supposed to be funny. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, yeah, I, and and that is definitely the case with the fourth film on your list. Sarah B. Miller, what is movie number four on your 1932 top five? It is James Whale's The Old Dark House. Fantastic. You haven't have any idea where we are. Let's look at a map or something. My own view is we're not on a map. Oh, look, Phil, light, light, pull in there. Knock again, louder. I should have thought that was loud enough to wake the dead. It is, it's one of those movies that if I know somebody knows it, then they're my friend because it's, <laughs> it used it's to be a lost movie. film. Yeah. Well, no, but it is. It's like, you know, people are like, oh, it's a red flag. It's a green flag movie, right? Like mm-hmm. anybody that knows this movie and likes this movie, like is a good human being. Um, it's one of the lesser known or was one of the lesser known James Bell movies until it kind of got rediscovered. It mm. was a lost film. Uh, and then James Bell's friend and uh, fellow filmmaker, um, Curtis Harrington mm-hmm. was a pioneer in like getting this film rediscovered and re-released sort of my DVD copy was like extremely expensive and came from <laughs> like a, a house that like, I was like, I don't even know who these guys are. It's not exactly the kind of movie that like universal is ever going to like do a big Blu-ray restoration for, unfortunately, sure. but it it is a really, really good film. It's a really great film for talking about like queer horror um it's uh for those who don't know it's essentially like a clutching hand thriller which is kind of like if you think like rocky horror picture show right like you've got um some people who go into like usually kind of like a spooky house and all the action is within that house there's usually things like class like there's usually like an old aristocratic or aristocratic family element or some sort of like class tension usually kind of have like stock characters like oh he's the funny one that drinks and like oh she's the one (laughs) that's kind of sensual this is the old man like so it it has all those kind of like um those are roles and then boris karloff is in it as this kind of like scary monster man um ernest thessinger who uh was a friend of james wales and he knew him from the the london theater scene um, and is probably best known uh, from Bride of Frankenstein. He played Dr. Pistorius in, in Bride yeah. of Frankenstein. So he plays Ernest Femme. Oh, I might have his first name wrong. But he, he plays uh, one of the Femme siblings. Mm-hmm. And he's he, a he very over the top. He is Horace Femme. Type character. Yes. Horace Femme. Horace Femme. Yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. So he plays him. Uh, he makes the line have a potato so funny somehow. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a really great kind of like queer film you know it really mm-hmm. kind of uh you know like it's not it's the 30s so like obviously it's not like overt but there there is a lot there there's a lot of even like between the uh the sister and the uh the, the woman who's the, the female lead i'm terrible at character names and i should have wrote them down i didn't but like there's like scenes between them they're like obviously hinting at some sort of like mm-hmm. sapphic or like you know lesbian sexual tension there's clearly uh an implication that the whole femme family is queer mm-hmm. uh you know even the beginning like that's it's you've got a couple and then like a third person and it's like this kind of like weird like you know not quite like a third wheel situation but like it's clearly not like a normal heteronormative like coupling here it's really great um i think james will just had a lot of fun with 
you know, taking what he loved about the theater and putting it into this movie and being scary and daring and really experimental with the cinematography uh, and like thematic imagery while also like just really being himself. Yeah, big time. No, I want to draw a connection and b- before we, we wrap up to two sort of like if you're a 90s kid, um, the two big connections here are number one, there's a really wonderful 1998 film about James Whale, sort of fictionalized, but you get the gist of his story called Gods and Monsters with um, with Ian McKellen as James Whale uh, and uh, Brendan Fraser in one of the, in our first sort of indication that, wow, this guy's a real actor. Um, and it's just terrific. If you're interested in James Whale's story, which is a really fascinating one, because he was an openly gay filmmaker in an era where, like, people were not openly gay. Um mm-hmm. The other nice connection, of course, is that the the sort of the sensuous female lead, uh, Margaret, the Margaret Waverton character is uh, played by Gloria Stewart. Um, I was who, wondering course, if you were going to bring that up. Would go on to play elderly Rose in uh, 1997's mm-hmm. Titanic. And I was, I mean, because I, I still sort of think of her of that first, but man, she is such a babe in this movie. Like, holy mm-hmm. moly. Uh some real pre-code costuming uh, for Gloria Stewart if we, and we will, we will leave it at that. Uh, Sarah, then what is the fifth and final film of your top five for 1932? The most dangerous game. Anybody around? Our yacht just sunk with all hands. Welcome to my poor fortress. my island. I have invented a new sensation. He sleeps all day and hunts all night. Count Zara was so interesting I didn't realize the danger. But what do you hunt here? I hunt the most dangerous game. Yeah. It's a movie that was on Turner Classic Movies one night and I had never seen it and I was not planning to watch it and I got so hooked. It's so good. It really is. Um, It's kind of like a precursor to King Kong in a weird way, right? Like you totally see um, the filmmakers who are responsible for King Kong. Like you see them like really experimenting with format and stunts and scenery. I don't know that, I don't know that it holds up in the same way that King Kong does. Actually, no, I think it does. I think it holds up. I like it a lot. I think it's really fun. Uh, It's one of those movies that has like a funny drunk character that we just don't do anymore, probably because it's alcoholism is upsetting. But Whatever. like, you Bring know, in the 30s, you could still laugh about people being a lush, you know. <laughs> uh, you have like uh, Leslie Banks is, is who's this like theater actor. He's doing Zaroff and he's he just is so vamping it up. Top. Oh, it's it's funny because it is so like the old Dark House, which was kind of why I wanted to do them together, even mm. though like I don't think it's intentionally queer in the same ways. You can still make those connections like Zaroff is a very queer coded character um and it also like it it technically like a lot of the action that we think of in that movie is like you know they're like out in the jungle but like a lot of the film is them being trapped in that house so you kind of get those kind of like clutching hand thriller vibes you have the scene where they're all in the like you know recreation room i don't know what you call it in a fancy house i'm not fancy but like where they like people are like playing piano and they're drinking and it's like you can uh, tell that there's festivities but it's also really tense is it the salon I, is that is that what they would call it is it the salon maybe the parlor is the parlor oh the parlor's term? a good one yes i think it yeah. is par- as you can see not a lot of fancy folks on on tonight's episode <laughs> but uh yeah and it's also like 
it has just some really interesting i think visual choices mm-hmm. like um the shark at the very beginning there's like a shipwreck and like a guy's left alone which is kind of like a very isolating moment and it's really mm-hmm. easy to like feel for this guy who's like everybody's off the boat in the water and they're getting picked off one by one but in like a not particularly violent way which is somehow more chilling but you get this like flash of a shark swimming and then one of them's like he got me and he disappears Mm -hmm. it's like a very um how do we put it there's something about theaters hollywood that has a very theatrical quality i mean not so much the like paramount pictures and whatnot which is why i don't tend to like them as much Mm -hmm. but like these kind of like lower budget universal films or like rko films like they they tend to to have more like restricted settings um they're they don't maybe are doing as much special effects there's more of like your imagination or like things are happening slightly off screen that that, you know you can understand what's happening but you don't need to see it to me that's like a very theatrical thing and i really like it like it just gives everything a very intimate feel nice nice i agree all right well that is one hell of a good top five sarah b milner so thank (laughs) you for bringing that to us uh we don't have a sponsor this week so let's do awards and box office with no 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 no. we got one what we do yeah oh yeah Oh, okay. Uh, like who? This episode of A Very Good Year is brought to you by the A Very Good Year After Show. Come again? Subscribe to A Very Good Year via Apple Podcast Premium Tier, and you'll not only get the commercial-free version of the show, you'll also get the weekly after show, where Jason and I talk about more of the movies of the week, rip through another lightning round, and sometimes, usually really, get a little personal. Mike, I have I'm I've no idea what you're talking about right now. Oh, I've been surreptitiously recording our after show conversations and releasing them as bonus episodes. Jesus Christ. Smart, right? Uh I was I was gonna say invasive. Ah, you would. Whatever. We gotta make some money off this thing somehow. So get a premium subscription for only five bucks a month on Apple Podcasts. Fucking weirdo. And now let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record companies only Okay, this is a mess, but we're gonna work it out together. Okay, okay. I'm ready. They're right. still on the weird non-calendar year schedule for the Oscars. Oh right. And all of okay. the rest of the major winners for this year's Oscars were nineteen thirty one releases. Oh, okay. Right. Bad Girl, yeah. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, The Champ, Cinna of Madeleine Claude. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. none of those movies are actually relevant to the conversation we're having right now. Okay. We're, we're, but that's we're, on them. That's not on us. Correct. Okay, okay. W- was there anything from 32 that was that won one of the big categories at the Oscars? Grand Hotel? Yeah! Best picture, go. Grand Hotel. Best picture. That's not picture. the Wes Anderson movie, right? No, no, no. no, no. no. He wasn't born yet. Okay. Correct, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sarah, Grand Hotel? Thoughts on Grand Hotel? Seen Grand Hotel? I haven't seen it. I am not super interested in it because, from what I understand, it's like the movie that was popular because it had all the stars in it. It did have uh, all the stars in it. Yeah. It's true. And I think it was, It's like, didn't it set a, like a, a precedent record? Like, it was the first movie to get best picture and like literally not not anything else <laughs> probably like it has so. some funny like um like has some funny record like that right um we could talk about dr jekyll and mr hyde even though it's not a 1932 movie it is a uh-huh. horror movie and uh-huh. it's a non-universal horror movie it was paramount's uh-huh. attempt to do horror and i think mm-hmm. that really shows and how glossy and pretty it is 
weird to me that it got nominated and i think it won for best actor Is it did it was, well it was a it was a tie for best actor uh between right, that with and, the the champ. Ch- and the champ yep yeah yeah um i mean i can kind of understand why i think that paramount's production value really like encouraged people to vote for it uh it is a good it is a good film i think it's probably the best dr jekyll and mr hyde uh although i haven't seen the like very first one that universal did in like 1911 or 13 or whatever Uh, i i think you are probably not alone in in not having tracked that one down um for the record I have seen Grand Hotel and found it very frothy but delightful. Um, and oh, you know, good. Gene Harlow's in it, so like I can't complain. Um, we do have what? the National Board of Reviews top ten. You want to hear those? Yes, I do. Yes, go ahead. Ooh, I do want to interject because there is an Academy Award film that is from 1932 that you didn't mention, and mm-hmm. it's Flowers and Trees, which is a really important Disney cartoon. Film. Yeah, oh, yes. it got a okay. special. I don't think it had an official award. I think it was like okay. it had some sort of like recognition for it, but okay. it was the first color uh, animated film. Well, nice. kind of, but. But it was it was like a very groundbreaking one that uh, Disney did as part of their silly symphonies, and it's uh, really kind of laid the groundwork for the kind of uh, animation techniques that they were going to be using to make Snow White in a few years. Nice, and okay. you can see it too. It's cool. Like yeah. you can see sort of you know what was to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. good. All the silly symphonies are really really good, and most of them are on YouTube. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Not through Disney, weirdly, but <laughs> Disney doesn't like the silly symphonies. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it doesn't have proper branding or what, but they're so good. They're, they're so interesting. Good. They were so innovative. Yeah. Disney just doesn't love them. Yep. Hmm. All right, Mike, what was the what were the National Board of Reviews top ten for thirty two? Let's go I don't through see, these. I don't know that these are like in an order. Uh, uh but there are ten alphabetical. Movies here. They did they they did them alphabetical, I believe. Sort of. <sighs> Yeah, Nerds today would never accept that. As You Desire Me with Garbo. Okay. Uh, I've not seen. Nope. Bill of Divorcement, George Cukor. Uh, not seen. Nope. Farewell to Arms, Frank Borzaggi. That Ryan is a good, Zazi. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, for, I think I picked good. that one up on Turner Classic Movies one night. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a, a, a about as faithful an adaptation of that book as you were going to be able to make in 1932 <laughs> per an <laughs> earlier conversation. Uh, I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Fantastic. Yeah. Madame Racketeer. No idea, but Jesus, what a great title. It's a great title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Payment Deferred, Charles Lawton. Um, I've not seen that, but I do love Charles Lawton. The 32 Scarface. Hell yes. Yes. Hell yes. yes. Good. Another Boris Karloff film. That's right. Yeah. I always and forget actually, that he's in that. that movie was made before Frankenstein. Uh, like or around the same time but it got held up because of censorship right they had to yeah there was a lot of concern about gangster films and like promoting the criminal activity to kids and romanticizing it so that movie got held up by the censors that's why it's a 1932 film and not a 1931 film fascinating yeah they had to slap that oh so convincing disclaimer on the on the the front of it so we all (laughs) knew that gangsters are actually bad um Mm -hmm. what else was on that uh border review list mike Tarzan the Ape Man. Ah, I do like uh, Tarzan the Ape Man. Uh, that, is, that, is the first one the one that has all the nudity? I always it sure is. It yeah. sure is. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I've, yeah, yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is still it is shocking when you and I think oh god I'm gonna I'm gonna totally screw this up but um I, if memory serves the the leading lady in the 32 Tarzan the Ape Man yes was Marino Sullivan. 
um, mm. Mia Farrow's mom. And so, like, you're watching this movie where it's like, oh, there's Mia Farrow's mom with her clothes off. Okay, fascinating, you know. <laughs> there it is. Uh, what else, Mike? Trouble in Paradise. Oh, Lubitsch. Uh, 80s uh, teen comedy, no? I don't oh, know, okay. but no, it was a killer 1932 Ernst Lubitsch uh sparkling romantic comedy oh trouble in paradise is excellent and finally two seconds surely it's not really two seconds long no no i i don't know maybe that's the uh the the prequel to the luke perry bronco buster movie eight (laughs) seconds from the 1990s anybody anybody remember eight seconds all right uh what was doing at the box office that year mike number 10 horse feathers marks brothers yay Yay! That, for the record, Horse Feathers is one of my, one of my very favorite Marx Brothers movies. Pure anarchy. It's the one where they go to college. I mean, how do you not love the Marx Brothers taking on not only college but also uh, college sports? Gotta love it. Gotta love it. It's fantastic. Number nine, Strange Strange Interlude, a Eugene O'Neill adaptation starring Norma Shearer and Clark Gable. I have not seen Strange. Number eight, Smiling Through. Another Norma Shearer, this time with Frederick March. Norma was a busy gal in 1932. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> Number seven, Tarzan the Ape Man. Yeah, with, with, with naked Mia Farrow's mom. <laughs> Number six, Prosperity with Marie Dressler and Polly Moran. Yeah, Marie Dressler was, uh, I didn't realize what a big star she was. Just, I'm sorry, just a side note recommendation. Um uh there is an episode of you must remember this one of the ones where karina had guest hosts and um our our friend uh farron neem uh the silver screen siren uh or self-styled siren did a whole episode about marie dressler where i i had no idea what a giant star marie dressler was it's all it's a really fascinating list and i'll put a link to that in the show notes well, she's going to come up again on this top ten list, so that'll she get sure you some is. attention. Number yep. five was Grand Hotel, starring everybody. Garbo, yes. John Lyle, yep. Baymore, yep. Joan Crawford, Wallace Beery, the list Good goes movie. on. Good movie. Number four, Helldivers, with Wallace Beery again and Clark Gable. Ah, that sounds like fun. Okay. Number three, Marie Dressler in Emma, not okay. a Jane Austen adaptation. <laughs> she would be, uh, that would be interesting casting if she played Emma in a 1932 film. Number two, Eddie Cantor and the Kid from Spain. I bet hey, you amazing. you I love Eddie Cantor. I, I'm do. sure I would love that movie. <laughs> that just sounds fantastic. He's probably uh-huh. got some little maracas or something. He I just probably can't so. imagine how good that probably is. And number so. one, previously mentioned Mr. DeMille with The Sign of the Cross. Sarah, thoughts on uh, the Sign of the Cross as a movie? Is have you have you seen it? Do you like it? What's the what's your what's your your uh, opinion on that one? I do. I mean, I tend to not like the epics as much as I think other people do. It would be different if I could see it on a big screen, though. Would sure. love, would love for somebody to put that on in Toronto and so I can go see it on a big screen. All right. Um, it's very sexy. Like, it's mm. it's shockingly sexy, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's some, like, girl-on-girl kissing. There's the dance that had William Hayes all hot mm-hmm. and bothered. There's mm-hmm. also, like, a lot of violence. I, there's, like... There's a, a moment where an elephant is like <laughs> dragging what I assume is a dummy, but mm-hmm. like it like actually is a little bit upsetting. I'm like, oh, that elephant is like murdering that dude. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's I mean, I totally understand why it made so much money because it is a spectacle. I mean, like I think DeMille made good movies. Like I think people liked them for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really like 
max maximized, right? Like maximized, mm-hmm. like set design. Although it uh, was a bit on a budget this one because it was 1930s, right? Like or Depression mm-hmm. era 1930s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like just big sets, big action, little hint of tits. You have a, a milk <laughs> bath that was apparently like cottage cheese by the third day of filming. Oh God! But is it looks really good on the film. It probably <laughs> smelled awful. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those. I think that like the biblical epics are really interesting from a censorship perspective because you can like see how they just used like Christian teaching mm-hmm. as like a Trojan horse to like mix metaphors of to like just have smut, right? Yes. Like they are so smutty and yes. violent and like everything you aren't supposed to like about the movies, but because it's like a biblical you know, Christian, story. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Then it's okay. <laughs> Yeah. So what? So so you're coming out against my film. Are you against the Bible? Are you against Jesus's <laughs> teaching? Like you can mount this argument in your sleep. God bless him for figuring out how to do it. All right, Sarah, you ready for a lightning round? Yes. Well, probably not, but maybe. <laughs> I think I've seen I've seen mostly like universal films that are uh-huh. specifically horror and like Disney uh-huh. stuff from the 30s. <laughs> I'm pretty ignorant otherwise, so I think it's going right. to go bad. Then all you just say is you say pass, of, and, just pass and just pass. Or you know what? If you can lie and say, oh, yeah, great movie. And no one will know. Here we go. <laughs> Mike's going to put five minutes on the clock. And here we are. White Zombie. Ooh, uh, good horror, um, a little problematic. <laughs> How so? Well, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. I just feel like it's one of those movies that like I watch it. I'm like, I like it, but like, uh, I don't know. There's just something about it that I feel like maybe I'm not like the person to speak about why this isn't great. I don't know. There we go. Uh, Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg did two films together in 32, Blonde Venus and Shanghai Express. Ooh, haven't seen Blonde Venus, uh, Shanghai Express, very sexy. Oh, yeah? hmm Fantastic. Uh, Frank Capra's American Madness was released in 1932. Ooh, pass. John Ford made two pictures in the Year of Our Lord 1932, Aerosmith and Flesh. Oh, this is like a, a pass that I feel bad about. I have not seen any John Ford movies. And the yeah. Fablemans made me feel really bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea that he made a movie with a title so close to the band Aerosmith. Um, <laughs> yeah. Michael Curtiz directed two pictures in 32, The Cabin in the Cotton and 20,000 Years in Sing Sing. Mm, pass on both. Hawks, Howard Hawks, the great Howard Hawks, and James Cagney collaborated twice on The Crowd Roars and Tiger Shark. I definitely haven't seen Tiger Shark. I think I saw The Crowd Wars, but I don't remember it. Dorothy Arzner's, this is maybe my favorite title of the year, Dorothy Arzner's Merrily We Go to Hell was released in 1932. No, I haven't seen that. Pass. Seek it out. There's a recent Criterion Blu-ray and it rules. Uh, The great Charles Lawton, mentioned many times in this episode, starred in Island of Lost Souls in 1932. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire with a Y. <laughs> oh, it's great. I like all the early vampire movies. Um, 
I mean, this one's good. It's not Dracula good, but I still like it. There we go. Um, Ruben Mamoulian mentioned earlier, directed a picture called Love Me Tonight. Pass. The original version of A Star is Born was called What Price Hollywood, and it was released in 1932. Wait a minute. There was like A Star is Born before there was A Star is Born? There was. Yes. I did not know that. So wait, does that mean that there's like actually a whole, like a fifth A Star is Born? Yes. Or am I just- correct. Okay. Correct. Okay, I haven't seen it, but now I really want to. It's worth seeking out. Um, Melvin Leroy's Three on a Match was released in 1932. Nope, pass. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, one of the great romances of Hollywood's golden age, only made one film together uh, several years before they were an item. They didn't even like each other all that much when they made it. It was called No Man of Her Own, and it was released in 1932. Pass. It's I, there, I saw this one in a Carol Lombard box set a couple of years ago, and it's really really good and they have really really interesting chemistry considering what we heard about them uh clark gable also starred in red dust in 1932 clark gable was busy in 1932 busy dude those con those mgm contract players they worked every single fucking day didn't they well i think this this like lightning round is a real reminder of like how the business model at this time was like make as many movies as you can yes and yes. do block booking. <laughs> Correct. And finally, Joan Crawford in Rain. Pass. And finally. I know. I'm so bad. That was so it's brutal. A, it's fine. Douglas Fairbanks in Mr. Robinson Crusoe. Have you seen that one? I've seen parts of it. That's one that I always try to catch on TCM and I never seem to catch it when it's like at the beginning of the movie. But from what I've seen, I really like it. We will take that as a closer. Thank you, Sarah <laughs> B. Milner. A fine lightning round. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. Sarah, where can the folks find you on social media? Oh, man. I mean, like, I used to use Twitter, but it basically doesn't exist anymore. It's a real um, ghost town over there these days. It's like when you go to a mall that you went to when you were a teenager. You know what it's, it's more like? It's more like if you like ever walked into the wrong class at like a university, <laughs> like maybe you were like hungover or something, and you're like, This isn't English 101. Like there's it's a bunch like, of Nazis in this room. Well, yeah, like literally today I, I went on and my entire timeline was people I did not follow were not retweeted by people I followed. I had no yep. idea who the fuck they were. And I'm like, yep. what's the point of Twitter? If it's like, what's the point of following <laughs> people if you're not even going to populate my feed with their stuff? Like, what's going Correct. on? Correct. Uh, so anyway, so if, if you want to like, you know, risk it, uh, you can find me there still. I think it's just Sarah B. Milner because I'm boring. Um, I uh, have a YouTube channel that is in the works. Maybe I'll have something by the time this episode goes live. Uh, it's just bad adaptation. It's just a place for me to post videos about adaptation, adaptation theory. Um, and then uh, maybe you'll find me on Blue Skies. I know somebody tempted me with a link earlier today, an invite. So, you know, Do it. Uh, you know, just I, I'd like Jason. I always like his stuff on social media. So just look for the weirdo who's commenting on all those <laughs> things. And it's probably me. 
I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find under my list the top fives for every single episode of the show. Mike, where can the folks find you? You just put me on Blue Sky as fifth column films. That's, I did. That's what, that was you that did that. I I, yeah. I sent you that invite. I did. You're also the guy that said, hey, you should sign up for Twitter. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I, gonna give you a second shot on this. Uh, your movie recommendation so far. Yeah, than your social apps. Blue Fair. Sky, Fifth Column Films. Hopefully, I'll remember to post it. But it would uh, mean the most to us if you would follow us on Substack, a very good year.substack.com, where paid subscribers get bonus episodes, bonus writing, all sorts of fun stuff. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1932? My favorite movie of 1932 is something that I had read about several times, but I never actually got a chance to see until today. Nice. So I am drunk with it. It's called <laughs> Que Viva Mexico. Uh-huh. And uh, it is basically um, Sergei Eisenstein, you know, very famous Russian filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, came to Hollywood in the early 30s to learn how to use sound and to make a sound movie. And then he just fucking didn't like anybody. And he was like, I don't actually want to fucking make movies with any of you fucking assholes. And in the meantime, he met several other people, including Upton Sinclair, who basically pitched him on uh, on making a movie about Mexico. And so he goes to Mexico and he shoots this movie, but it did. they didn't actually get a chance to cut it. The film got sent to L.A. They got, I don't know, for whatever reason. Now it's on YouTube with an introduction by his co-director who comes on and sort of tells the story. And there's pictures of the different people who were showing them around Mexico, including Diego Rivera and an uncredited but obvious Frida Kahlo who's wow. like standing right there, you know. <laughs> so you see the movie and and it is... Mexico as seen by Diego Rivera and other painters, but photographed by Eisenstein's guys. Wow. By, you know, some of the best DPs in the history of the fucking industry. You know, these Russian guys who were just absolutely incredible. Who invented the the art form. Yeah. Who invented the art form. Invented the montage. It's sort of a 1930s soy Cuba. You know how much, I mean, I can't, I mm. almost can't go an episode without mentioning that movie for some reason lately. Sure. I don't know why, but anyway, it's called KB by Mexico and I it has it was obviously it was not available for a long time and now the whole thing is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that's a thing that happens now with a lot of these mm-hmm. silence and early films and the edit that's on, that is on there is an edit that was made years later by his co-director. Um, and he's very clear, like, I could never make a movie like The Master, but I tried my hardest. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's everything that I wanted it to be. Uh, KB by Mexico. How about okay. you, Jason? Uh, again, we have an, uh, uh, just a, a fabulous double feature for you from our recommendations. Um, mine is W.C. Fields' 1932 short film, The Dentist. Um, yes! Which was... The first of four shorts that he made for uh, for producer Max Sennett, who uh, was attempting a comeback in the sound era. Uh, the other three came out in 1933, and they're all pretty good, but The Dentist is just an exquisitely funny, nasty, nihilistic uh it's it's W.C. Fields at his absolute best uh, playing just a grouchy dentist. I mean, like the titles are not, you know, there's no metaphor involved in the <laughs> titling here. It's 20 minutes just of him being a dentist and, uh, and you know, a, a, a harried house husband and all of the sort of things he did well. Um, 
I can't really sell it beyond the fact that it's W.C. Fields playing a dentist. Uh, but that's my pick. Thank you again, Sarah, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. And I know I'm happy to leave here with like a whole slew of movies I'm going to go watch now over the weekend. There we go. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. sweet and clear. It was a very good 